Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Memorial Day weekend 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. You can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. And if you want to send me a personal note, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Doing a little something different today. Welcome in, everybody. It's Memorial Day weekend, and hopefully, even though uh, it's still kind of not legal to go out and have fun in New York, uh, hopefully you're having fun somewhere, and, and if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you're healthy, I hope you're safe. So joining me, and, and very rarely do you get a chance to get a whole hour where we, we kind of go back and forth, and, and I'll call him kind of a, we'll call him a celebrity guest co-host, a good friend of mine, known him for a long time. You guys know him, uh, the founder of Gotham Baseball, has a book out. Uh, Gotham Baseball, New York's all-time team, and he's going to be joining us throughout the next 60 minutes, talking baseball, freelancing with me, and, and Mark, welcome in, and uh, look, uh, Memorial Day weekend, we're talking baseball, no baseball, I don't think this is the vision you had when you thought about launching Gotham Baseball, nor did you think you were spending Memorial Day weekend like we're going to be spending it here in 2020, so welcome in, hope you're doing well, and uh, thanks for joining me throughout this next hour. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. You know, it's always a pleasure to come on with you. It's like old times. And, uh, you know, you're right. It, it, it's, it really is. It's, 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 it's unreal, you know. Uh, everybody has a term for it, unprecedented times, you know. Everybody uses the, the you know, the different uh, code words and, and, and everything to describe it. But really, it's just, it's unreal, you know. Uh, we were supposed to have uh, the book launch at Foley's. Uh, in Manhattan at 33rd Street. Uh, we were supposed to do a whole bunch of signings. 
Uh, I was under consideration for the Cooperstown Author Series. We never got a final answer as to whether uh, Gotham Baseball and New York Soul Time team would be included in it. I was hopeful uh, because of my relationship with the Hall of Fame, and I thought that you know they would be. Um, you know, that, that, that would be something like a dream come true to, you know, bring my dad with me and my son and the rest of my family to Cooperstown for an author series. Uh, and again, you know, who knows, maybe it happens in 2021, maybe it happens never, but you know, like my, in my vision of spending the summer of 2020 signing books and doing signings and talking to people, you know, certainly it has taken, you know, taken a, a, a different turn and it's been, uh, it's been really weird. And I was thinking about this before we were coming on and uh, we may not have baseball. I think there will be baseball and I think, in, and without getting into that, because I think it'll ruin the whole hour because it's about the book and I want to give somebody something uh, to really debate and talk about and not really talk about money and salaries and health and protocols and all the stuff that the public health officials uh, get all happy about. Um, but I thought about the summer 94. Now, at that time, I'm 16, 17 years old, you know, heading into, uh, you know, senior high school. And baseball, the Mets, we're Mets fans. Let's just hold this disclosure here. Forget about journalism and being balanced. We're Mets fans. So, Summer 94 is not really special for Mets fans. It was special for Yankees fans. Certainly would have been special for Montreal Expos fans. And when baseball went down, I personally was like, eh. Because you know, that was at the height of the NBA, the Knicks, you know, the Knicks title run. I was more excited about the basketball season. And I was, baseball has been my first love, and, and it's been the thing that I've always, you know, as a sport, has come first, even though maybe I stepped away from it for a little bit during that era. And I thought about that, and I said, would not having baseball this summer really bother me? Now, it would bother me more than 94, but you know, part of me doesn't want a bastardized version of the game. And um, that's what I worry about. And, and I don't know, maybe now because it's Memorial Day, I'm starting to feel it a little bit. I'm not feeling the sting yet because I still think there'll be baseball. But it's kind of like starting to like – yeah, maybe it's time to like this endless off season needs to end. That's that's how I'm looking at. It. So I'm curious how you are because it's not it's not the same as '94 for me. Um, but I'm not all broken up yet, and maybe it's too early for that. I think it's a combination of you know '94 for me. I was a little bit older. You know, I was uh, that was the summer of getting ready to get married. Um, I was working uh, at, at, a, at a law firm, believe it or not, as a paralegal or at least as a, a semi-paralegal, <laughs> paralegal professional. Um, and, I, you know, I, basically I was going to uh, – I was working during the day and then going to Connecticut School of Broadcasting at night um, because I had turned my back on my acting career and I was, you know, pushing forward with my broadcasting career. So I was working full-time and then going to school at night and saving for a wedding. So, you know, the fact that the Mets were terrible – uh, you know, me, I, I, you know, I grew up in the seventies when the Mets were really terrible. So, you know, it was never, I, I, the biggest thing I was worried about is that I was going to be away for the world series. I'm going to be on my, on my honeymoon for the world series. And I don't miss the world series. You know, I always watch the world series, you know, don't get especially married in October. Don't get married. Well, in, you know, the second one is in August. I was smart on the second one. I made sure. I put it in August. So hopefully my wife's not listening. I'll get in trouble for that one. But I interrupted you on <laughs> No, no, it's okay. I get it, you know. But that's what I was worried about. I was like, oh, man. I was like, how am I going to get 
on my honeymoon, you know, we, we went to Disney world. How am I going to watch the world series? You know? And, you know, I, I love my wife to death, but she's not one. She'll go to a game. You know, she'll go to a game if we have good seats, but she's not watching baseball on TV. It's just not happening. No, so, not you know, and, yeah, so that was that was like what I was worried about. So when they didn't get to play, and I had actually enjoyed watching that Yankee team, even though, you know, I am a Mets fan, but I did enjoy watching that Yankee team in 94 because there was something about Buck Walter I really liked. I always liked Don Mattingly. You know, I liked the fact that they were young. I liked the fact that they were – you know, being competitive, I would have loved to have seen a Yankees Montreal Expos World Series. I thought that would have been a lot of fun, but it didn't happen. So, with with this season, you know, I, I'm I'm wary of the kind of kooky wiffle ball rules that they want to play. I am wary of what it's going to mean to the history of the game. Um, but at the end of the day, let's be honest. Uh, I'm not getting up at, I'm not staying up till one o'clock in the morning and I'm not getting up at one o'clock in the morning to watch Korean baseball. So if they're going to bring back, you know, major league baseball in some fashion, uh, I will definitely watch. I will definitely be excited about it because in, in this kind of a short, crazy season, who knows, uh, what could happen, you know, for the Mets and for the game. Um, you know, but I, I think at the end of the day, though, Mike, I think that, you know, if we get any kind of baseball, it'll be gravy. And, you know, I don't think in the, in the long run, I, you know, Tom Glavin, um, you know, you know, made a, I don't know if you saw that today. Tom Glavin basically said that, you know, and he was very, very uh, prominent uh, in the 94, 95, you know, labor uh, strife. He was, you know, one of those guys that came out of that, was very unpopular. It was one of the reasons he wound up a Met. Um, but you know, I digress, but Glavin today said that, you know, if, if baseball doesn't get back because of an economic issue that the players will regret it and the fans won't forget. And he's right. So let's just hope that they figure something out. I don't even want to like, I, I I don't even want to hear about the negotiations. I don't want to comment on the negotiations. You know, I just like, my thing is if people ask me, what do you think? I'm like, I hope we have baseball and that's it. Yeah, I, I agree. 36 million unemployed, 15% unemployment, probably going to go up. And, right. and who, who yeah. have tapped out of the workforce for sure. You Mickey, Mantle, about- Mickey Mantle, don't pay my rent. <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of like mentality. Mickey Mantle, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I care about you there. Uh, exactly. Um, exactly. So we talked about this, let's say 82 game season, your team wins a title. And um, we you brought up to me the Knicks of 99 big Knicks fan and and was that any less special uh the 99 season not as cool as 94 but but fun like kind of a wild magic carpet ride uh and if they won the title would I not put a a, a pennant up in in my in my office would I not look back nostalgically of course I, I I would New Jersey Devils fans when the Devils won their Stanley Cup in 95 that was a strike shortened season as well um but uh, if they play with wacky divisions and spring training, you know, stuff, and uh, I don't know, that's the part that really bothers me because here's what I could see you know, as, as, you know, doing a Mets-centric show. Here's what I could see happen. They win the damn uh, thing here this year. They break the, you know, the, the drought. And then all you're going to hear for the next 50 years before they win the next one is, well, that one didn't count. 
That's what I could I could see that happening. I could see that happening. Or well, worse yet for Mets fans, it saves the Wilpons from not having to, to sell the team. Could you think of all those things, like Mets fans going through all this during this pandemic well, uh, shutdown? The, <laughs> the, the second thing would be worse. <laughs> the second thing would be worse. Back, I'm not getting into all that on the right. thing. If they come right. back that, from well, this, they're like the cockroach. They are like the cockroach yeah. after the apocalypse because if they come back from this financial wiggle room, I don't know. I give up on that one because they're the luckiest people on the face of the earth to quote somebody that's actually in your book, Lou Gehrig. So it'll be interesting. <laughs> but, but anyway, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I don't. I, I say now it won't matter, but come October, if the Mets are in the postseason, whatever the postseason looks like, we'll be talking about it. We'll be watching it. And Mets fans who are listening to it are going to get annoyed if Edwin Diaz blows a save. And I'll get annoyed if Robinson Cano has one of those 4-3 lazy ground outs. You know that's going to be the case despite what I'm saying now here on this Memorial Day weekend. Of course, because if it's, if, when it comes back and the games count and it's a W or an L, we're going to care. And that's why I don't, you know, that's why I don't like invest too much in anyone else saying it's a fraud. Did anybody say that about the Dodgers in 81? Uh, you know, Jason Turnow's uh book uh they bled blue i'm really looking forward to reading that by the way but um you know that 81 that 81 series those 81 playoffs the strike year that that was a great playoff season the way they split the seasons and they had the you know the first half champion play the second half champion i mean i i remember it vividly uh that um you know that nlcs between uh the dodgers and the expos and that was you know uh I remember rooting for the Dodgers and my dad was rooting for the Expos because my dad was a huge, you know, Gary Carter guy. And, you know, I was a big Steve Garvey guy and my father couldn't, you know, he really couldn't root for the Dodgers because they had, you know, left Brooklyn. He was still miserable. I, you know, if they're playing the Yankees, that's one thing, but, you know, playing at the Expos with Gary Carter, who he loved, you know, he was rooting hard. And then, um, at the end of the game, Gary Carter, uh, Steve Garvey was being interviewed. That was the game in uh, which Rick Monday, I guess, hit the game winner off of Steve Rogers. And, you know, Garvey's standing there in his Brooklyn Dodger T-shirt. And my father was like, ah, oh, I guess I got to be happy because he's wearing a Brooklyn Dodgers T-shirt. And there's a great story, and I'll tell people that are listening to the podcast, if you go to uh, my website, I'll post it. Um, I did an interview with Steve Garvey. And he has this incredible story of why he was wearing that Brooklyn Dodger T-shirt. People, you know, a lot of people don't know that Garvey was a bat boy for the old Brooklyn Dodgers, and his dad drove the bus. So, you know, I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that led to the book. Like, that's the kind of storytelling and history that was really the basis for the book. Not that it was about Steve Garvey, but just that whole that whole aspect of being able to tell a story. You know, and I think that if baseball does come back, Mike, that you, you're going to have a situation where if, you know, the game has been stuck in this strikeout home run, um, you know, uh, shifts, infield shifts and outfield shifts and, uh, you know, the launch angle and, and all that stuff, exit velocity, this might turn baseball back to being fun again. Because we really don't know what to expect, you know. And Mark, and maybe no for them not to compete, there's no excuse. Right. In an 80 exactly. season, I think it was exactly. actually uh, Tim Britton put out on, at the Athletic, which 
I know that you have to pay for it, but in a sea of, of, of crap, and I'll say crap that's left out there, uh, including the mainstream papers, which is, are getting stripped apart, um, and, and there's some great writers who should be out there working, and they're not, uh, that The Athletic has done pretty good. You know, he, he went to some seasons where how would they end if they ended at 82 games? And he pointed out the Red Sox in 2004 would not have uh, you know, made the, the, the playoffs, so the, there's no end to the curse. And you know, there's seasons where the Oakland Athletics would win 100 games, but they were under 500 midseason. Think about the Mets last year and where they were. And, and, or if, if the second half of last year was the season, the Mets are one of the best teams in baseball. It's a totally different right. thing. So there's, right. no exactly. not to com- there's no excuse not to compete. But I agree with you, and I was thinking about as this book, and what I do here is, and I'm, a, and I've evolved. You know, when you and I met in 2007, six, whatever it was, I wasn't into any of these stats. And, and I remember we used to talk about it. Go, oh, this stuff. It's, I was so backwards. And I even think back to how I talked about the game in that time, and it was backwards. I wasn't as advanced. And the stats have advanced me, and and being around the game and talking to people and experience has advanced me. I think anyway. But I still feel the narrative and the storytelling. And the and and the and the things that aren't the numbers are what makes this fun and what makes this sort of a soap opera. And I don't get that out of the NFL. And I have to be honest, as much as I'm trying to love the NBA, it's not the same. I mean, I was watching the last dance. I actually watched the the last episode right before I, I came on with you. And I'm like, I need that again. I need that maybe because of the Knicks and stuff like that. And, and I've never been a big hockey fan, but baseball, even when the Mets haven't been great, there's been that ability to have these kind of conversations. And I think when you pick up this book, I took a few things away. One, you talk about your uh, road, road, which is not paved with yellow gold in journalism and how you created the, the magazine and the website. So that's part of what you're talking about. You're bringing back, I think, the, the old school conversation debate. And, and then you take uh, this team and, I, and you're really – you use numbers, but you're using them very loosely. And I'm sure uh, as you talk to different types of sex in this crazy baseball world, you're going to get criticized. Uh, hopefully it'll be you know, not mean-spirited. But you don't really get too crazy. You take the numbers, you put them in context, but you really talk about the person. And I think that's where you might get a little confusion because when someone says, how can you pick David Wright as your third baseman or how can you pick Joan Payson as your owner? And there's no Mickey Mantle on this list. I mean, you're going to get eviscerated by a whole baby boomer generation. Um, There's a reason for that. And I think it brings up that fun debate. So um, this is a Mets centric show. We could get into the Mets things, but what, what did this Genesis of doing it this way? Gotham baseball was always about the past present, present and future of, of the game. You had the magazine, you turned it into the, the, the website. Uh, Obviously you went to other ventures and, and you really tried to in this crazy world, make things stick. But now you took that concept and said, let's talk about New York baseball and, and kind of have this authoritative, at least from a Gotham perspective team. And that's what you came out with here. And, and that's what they're going to get the fans when they purchase this book. Well, you know, and and thanks for the kind words, Mike. I mean, you know, we, we, you know, it's funny when, you know, the whole, the whole aspect of Gotham baseball started when my mom had gotten me this book, uh, you know, about baseball it was uh, the celebration. It was, it was in the year 2000 and it was, uh, I had just, I had been at AP for a couple of years. You know, I was getting ready to cover the Brooklyn Cyclones first season in 2001. And my mom was always getting me these like coffee table books, you know, about baseball. And this one was 
particularly good, you know, and I I liked it because it was it was illustrative as well it, it was illustrative as well as it was historical. So it had like uh, drawings in it. It had illustrations. It had baseball cards. It, it was really kind of like very eclectic look at every year in baseball. And you know when I got you know when I started to read it, I saw in 1904 that Jack Chesbro for the New York Islanders, who used to be the you know with a the team that became the Yankees had won 41 games in 1904. And I'm like, the number just didn't make any sense to me, like 41 games. And, you know, even then, I considered myself pretty good baseball historian, and I had never heard of the guy. So that, that kind of led to the whole idea of having a place where people could go, fans of all ages could go and kind of learn, not only learn about the game, but experience the game today, uh, have conversations about prospects because the old Mets inside pitch magazine, uh, which used to be a newspaper, uh, when I was growing up, that was something that I subscribed to. And one of the things I loved about it is that it talked about the history of the, of the Mets. It talked about the team at the time and it talked about the prospects that were coming in. And which I remember big trying deal. to call nobody. Yeah. Did that. Nobody did. That. I, of course. Well, I, nobody I did. Think right. About prospects. Back in the 90s, when right. I grew up watching, late 80s, early 90s, prospects were like, you know, when a guy made his first major league debut, I'll tell you a quick funny story. I remember John Smoltz's debut on, a, I think it was a Sunday against the Mets in 88. Mets are obviously running right. away with the division. He shuts them down, yep. and all I remember saying to my dad is, hey, they got shut down by this scrub, John Smoltz. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no scrub, right? There you go. But that right. was rookies. Right. You, we didn't know back then this was a top prospect for the Tigers at one point. Would have been totally different today. That same thing, and that's funny because you—that's that's what you tried to bring, and you tried to take that that inside pitch, which I remember getting that that magazine, right? That newspaper, right? And you tried to bring that at a time where it still wasn't really uh, chic to talk about prospects like it is now. Well, I remember I remember in the '80s calling uh, Howie Rose um, and asking him about Reggie Roby. I mean, that's how old I am. You know, that's how old I go back. Reggie Roby was a, was a Mets prospect. I believe Reggie did make it to the majors. Um, you know, wasn't, wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't a standout or anything like that, but I remember calling him up and, and saying, Hey, I just read Mets inside pitch. And, you know, it was when my, uh, uh, you know, it was when Howie had just started at, and it was on WHN, uh, ten fifty. And I had, I, you know, I'd asked him a question and he was like blown away. He was like, hey, you know, that's so cool. Mets inside pitch, Reggie Roby, la, la, la. And then, you know, when I interviewed Howie for this book and I had interviewed Howie before um, for Mets inside pitch um, when he replaced Bob Murphy. And, you know, he was and I told him, I said, you know, I, I knew you wouldn't remember this. I said, but, you know, I remember calling you and asking you that question. And, you know, now today it's like we would never imagine what would be what's available to us today as far as all, all that stuff, you know, knowing about the scouting reports, having access to spray charts and all that, you know, all that stuff that, you know, I love as a baseball fan that I hope really, you know, I hope when people read the book that they get that, that they get that how much I love the game and how much I wanted to tell these stories. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what really I hope people take away from it that, you know, yeah, you can argue with me as to who I picked and uh, you can argue with me with, you know, 
some of the statistics I might have used. But the one thing you won't argue is that I love baseball, you know. And, you know, that's, that, that was what I wanted to bring to those pages. That was my love of the game and that I want you to love. I want you to love the book, but I want you to love the argument. I want you to love the debate. I want you to love the, the, the opportunity to come at me, <laughs> you know, and say, how could you pick this guy? So yeah, I'm 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 really looking forward to you know if if we're ever allowed out of our houses again, um, I'm really looking forward to interacting with the fans uh, at at a signing or at a you know at a at a Q and A uh, you know or an author talk and and having those kinds of conversations because that's what that's why I love baseball and that's why I love sports is is the debate you know as long as it's you know. As long as it's not mean spirited, like you know, the Twitter Twitter can get. But you know, as long as it comes from a place of, hey, this is my guy, and this is why I think you know my guy is better than your guy, and kind of, you know, I mean, that's the age old, you know, that's the age old thing, you know, uh, you know, debating on whose players were better, whose team was better, which championship meant the most. You know, those are the things I love about sports, and that's the thing I really love about baseball. All right, guys, Reggie Doby, and I got like, I, I to bring this up. Reggie Doby flamed out at 24 years old, pitching for the Mariners, AAA team at Calgary. He had some decent seasons for a Tidewater, a uh, guy that walked. Yeah, he was a guy that they, yeah, they had a lot of, uh, they had a. Guys. Way too many guys, <laughs> right-handed, big guy, 6'2". Um, Live arm. What? <laughs> Live arm, but, you know, today they would sneer at a strikeout rate of 6.5 for his minor league career. They'd be like, what is he, a contact pitcher? Um, right, right, so, right, right. Yeah, exactly. But I'll make you laugh, and this is courtesy of our buddies over at uh, MetsmerizedOnline.com, and this is from a, a post on March 12, 2016. Mets top 10 before the 86 season prospects. I'll make you guys laugh. Kevin Elster, top prospect, no surprise there. Sean Abner. Stanley Jefferson, he of the NYPD fame during 9-11. Not another good big prospect, uh, part of the Kevin McReynolds deal. David West got Frank Viola to the Mets, big lefty, uh, probably more hype for the Mets than actual uh, uh, meat and potatoes as a player. Randy Myers, Greg Jeffries, obviously know those guys. Keith Miller, you guys know those guys. Billy Bean, uh, known for Moneyball. Jose Bautista, uh, who I think pitched for the Orioles if that's the same guy, and then number 10, Reggie Doby. And I do remember Reggie Doby. And if I'm not mistaken, Mark, he was a part of the talks when they were trying to get Mark Langston, if I, if I remember correctly. If you remember, the Mets were always trying to pursue I, Mark Langston. Yeah, I kind of remember, I kind of remember that, but yeah. I don't know how he got to Seattle, because Baseball Reference does not have how he got there. But anyway... That's the kind of stuff. Here we are. We're talking, and it's interesting. And here I find it funny. Like, let me see who the Mets' top ten prospects are. And I'm I'm looking at these names, and I'm thinking to myself, I could see uh, Mets fans. And and I remember when Keith Miller came up, I didn't know who he was. And here he is, a seventh best prospect in '86. If this was today, we would know who he was because of publications right. like Gotham, because how advanced it's become, because of the the ability to do what we're doing here. Um, albeit part-time, but be able to have a forum and people that subscribe to this, we would know who this is. And um, it might be different acquiring Frank Viola for Kevin Tappany and David West. The fans might not look the same at, at that trade, uh, and they might think the Mets gave up too much, where back then it was like, 
here, take these guys. I want Viola. So interesting how things have changed and how um, Gotham was able to and has still able to bridge that gap. And it's one of the few places where you can do all that. Uh, you know, Metsmerized Online might be the other one. You know, those guys do the same thing. So it's really interesting looking back in time as you look at and Reggie Doby came to mind. And look, there it is, the power of the Internet. We could look up Reggie Doby's career and, and how he probably uh, – you and Howie Rose might be the only two that knew that guy in the, the days of 1986. And, uh, <laughs> and two guys over there. Well, well and, people who subscribe to Mets Inside Pitch, those, those are the people that, that knew about Reggie Doby. Uh, so – yeah. So here's the part when you go to the Mets portion of this book. And the book is Gotham Baseball, uh, New York's all-time team. And you can get Mark on Twitter at Mark C. Healy, GothamBaseball.com. Uh, Marty Appel, he of uh, Yankees fame, is uh, the forward. Uh, John Panisi did some really cool illustrations, uniform designs by Todd. Is it Radom? Is that how I say Radom? Is that, it's Radom. Radom. John Radom. History Press published the book. So no one could argue with Tom Seaver being on this team. I think it would be sacrilegious with him not being on this team, although the, Yan- the Mickey Mantle fans on the Yankees side are probably going to be pissed that uh, he's on there and, and the, his, their guy isn't. Um, when you bring – Piazza not as – and I'll go Piazza because the four individuals that are, make this team from the Mets' point of view, Tom Seaver, Mike Piazza, David Wright, Joan Payson, Piazza uh, and Seaver not quite – surprising piazza maybe a little bit right was very surprised uh joan payson uh very informative reading that chapter uh and 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 we'll get into that in a bit but um piazza part was surprising because it was very competitive campanella yogi berra um bill dickey as mario bell points out thurman munson gary carter albeit a short period of time not an easy pick, but I think, and and I think the reason why you picked him was for the same reason why, and and I've been fortunate to have spoken to Mike on this show just a year ago. It was so transcendent for the franchise when he was re- acquired. You talk in the book where you were. You remember where you were when the trade was made. I remember where I was when the trade was made as a Mets fan, driving on the Van Wick Expressway, getting the uh, the 2020 update. And I'm like, it was like, wow, the Mets got Mike Piazza and. And the whole world changed for the Mets that day. One player, that usually doesn't happen in, in baseball. One player, the whole world changed in an era, and an era that is still special to me. The Subway Series was the golden era, the Subway Series. And I think it revived baseball for me personally after I had walked away, not completely, but it became a second sport to me, to the NBA. I started, it started to creep back up thanks to not only Bobby Valentine's Mets, but Piazza coming over. And I guess the transcendent nature of his acquisition is why he made the team. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I never envisioned when I sat down uh, to write the book that Piazza would be my catcher because, uh, because of the competition. The book, um, for, for those who haven't read the book yet, um, the 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 team in part, not in whole, but in part, was based on a ballot I had, I had created uh, along with people like Marty Appel, uh, Greg Prince from Faith and Fear and Flushing, um, a whole bunch of people uh, inside the game, different baseball executives over the years that I had, I had become friendly with. Uh, everybody uh, that I had spoken to uh, had some kind of input in the ballot that we had created. And the ballot was 
um, you know, a, a ballot for every position uh, on the field, first base, second base, third base, shortstop. Uh, there were five starting pitchers. Uh, there were actually two uh, left-handed starters, two right-handed starters, closer, manager, general manager, and owner. And the ballot was created by picking who I thought was the most worthy player from each franchise. So let's just say for argument's sake, uh, not argument's sake, but for, for, for the Yankees, it was Yogi Berra. And that was a, a big you know, that was a big decision. Do I put Barrett? Do I put Dickey? You know, I had to go with Barrett, you know, and I, I understood the historical significance of Bill Dickey, uh, how good he was. I certainly had done my research, but it was Barrett, Campanella, Roy Campanella for the Brooklyn Dodgers. I put Gary Carter on the ballot uh, because of my connection to Gary and because he had won a World Series and he was the missing piece to the 86 team. I took a lot of guff from people that thought Piazza deserved to be there uh, from a statistical standpoint. But, you know, I and Ed Bresnahan, Roger Bresnahan from the New York Giants. But I had each ballot for each position had a write-in. And the write-in, you know, the write-in option came from, you know, knowing when the year that, that Steve Garvey was a write-in starter for the, you know, for, for the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, for the All-Star game. And I said, if people really care, if people really want to vote for somebody else, they can. You know, they could vote for Bill Dickey. They could vote for, you know, whoever. Um, it was an overwhelming victory for Piazza as the write-in candidate. Um, I thought Barrow would win. I thought Barrow would win, you know, given his connection to the Mets, given his connection to the Yankees, he's beloved by both fan bases. I figured, you know, it'd be great to write about him because, you know, he is a true Gotham baseball player. You know, he, he played for the Yankees. He managed the Yankees. He played for the Mets. He managed the Mets. I mean, I figured, you know, there'd be no way, you know, and, and having met, having had the honor of meeting Yogi Berra and having a conversation with him once, you know, like, like I felt, you know, that's what, where it would go, you know, but, people overwhelmingly voted for Mike Piazza. So I, I felt that it was such a surprising result that, you know, I had to put him on the team. You know, the fans had to have their say, you know. Um, and there was only, I think, one or two other, there was only one or two other examples in the book where I went against the fans. Uh, this is one where I went with the fans. And as I did my research, and I love Mike, don't get me wrong. I love Mike. I enjoyed watching him play. But again, you know, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to seem biased, you know, just because I love the player. Um, and just because I, I, you know, got so excited watching him play. Um, I didn't want that to, so I really did my, my, my homework. And I, you know, I had I'd interviewed Mike uh, during his career. Uh, you know, I had certainly was what saw him, you know, play at such a super high level. But when I did the research and I started getting into, you know, yeah, he wasn't a great thrower. No one ever said he was, but all the other aspects of his game, uh, how underrated. many people from, yeah. So, home, so many people from so many different backgrounds talked about his ability to frame, his ability to receive, his ability to work with pitchers, the way he blocked the plate, the way that he played the position, uh, you know, and, and went out there every day, even when he was hurt. And so 
you know, Piazza being the catcher, I felt so good about it after writing the chapter that, you know, most people think that I picked him just because I'm a Mets fan, but, you know, I clearly in the book work out, you know, for everyone why I made the decision and, and why I feel justified in it. And, and I think Mike Vaccaro was the guy that surprised me the most uh, from the New York Post, the great columnist, Mike Vaccaro, because when I said to him, I expected him to say, how can you not, because he's a historical, you know, he's one of these guys that always looks at the historical aspect of the game. And I thought when, when I said to him that it was Mike Piazza, that he was going to be like, you know, Mark, really? How can you put Piazza in there over Campanella or Berra? And he was like, yeah, I think that's great. He goes, he's not just, you know, the greatest hitting catcher of all time. He might be the greatest, one of the greatest right-handed hitters period of all time. So, um, that was uh, that was one of the first people. He was one of the first people I had interviewed for the book about Piazza, and I really came away feeling really good about my decision after that conversation with Mike. And you know, as I said, once I finished the chapter and did all my research, I felt you know really good about putting him there. But I also knew by putting him there, there was going to be a lot of people that would you know certainly uh, object to it. But that's. You know, as I said, you know, and as you said, that's what makes this book fun for folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other individual Mets related that uh, certainly will get a lot of debate, not just from Yankees fans, but maybe even Mets fans, uh, positive and negative, because I think his career is, is actually quite interesting, is David Wright. And I think David's a great guy. You and I have spoken about him. I've spoken to people that have, have known him. I've met him once in a non-baseball social setting. And I could tell you, for not knowing me from Adam, to say hello, he, he goes out of his way to say hello to people. He's a nice guy. I, at least that's the impression I got. And it was a very short encounter with him on, on an outside-the-ballpark level. Uh, David, to me, is almost a baseball tragedy because wrong place, wrong time, Freak injury, uh, first four years of his career, Hall of Fame trajectory, over 300 batting average, over 100 home runs, uh, OPS plus of over 140, uh, probably on the Eddie Matthews level, Chipper Jones level at that point in terms of a career. And then City Field comes, which you mentioned in the book. Then he gets dead by uh, Matt Cain. I always remember a Saturday afternoon game, and Keith Hernandez has talked about how he felt that that uh, derailed David. And then there's that, the back injury, which I think he had that a lot longer than just 2015. I think people don't realize. And I also remember when it was announced that he had stenosis, uh, my wife, who's a little bit more savvy with the medical terms uh, and who has had neck issues herself, turns to me and goes, that's not good. And uh, when I read about the prognosis, I'm like, how is he ever going to play? And I'll give him credit. Not only did he come back that season in 2015, he played very well. Look at his numbers down the stretch in 2015 from the last week of August through the World Series, that was his last hurrah. He left everything on the – his career, whatever little juice – think of it like a, an iPhone battery. Whatever 10% juice he had, he left it there on the field. He came back the next year, shell of himself, and he never really played again. And uh, I'll give him credit on that. From an overall career uh, mark, not sure he's the best third baseman in New York history – Interesting career. Why would you pick David Wright? And did I summarize Wright uh, pretty fairly when you look at all the pros, cons, and, and how his career is viewed? There was no way Alex Rodriguez was going to be on this team. 
you know, and any other steroid right? guys. It was it, there's no there's I yeah. I mean, look, there, there, there's no way. There's just no way. And I you know, it, I I get it. You know, I get it. And and the uh, you know the sabermetric guys love for some reason the steroid guys. Um, and I, I I'm sorry. You know, I know it's going to irritate a lot of people. And you make, you make the argument with Piazza, and that's unfair. And 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 Mike has even said, who the hell is uh, Reggie Jefferson, right? But uh, that's what people argue on that whole thing. Could Piazza? Yeah, but that's a rumor. But that's a rumor, and that's a rumor that you know the the people that perpetuate that rumor are again Reggie Jefferson, who never played with Mike. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the back acne. Uh, you know that that you know stupid thing that was started by uh, the New York Times uh, columnist that. Uh, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I once hit a line drive off his knee when he was pitching in the press league. When I played for AP, he was playing with Murray Chess. That's his name. That's how I remembered because I, I hit a line drive off his knee. Um, you know, he's the guy that, you know, oh, yeah, you know, he's, got, he's on steroids. He has back acne. I mean, you know, Mike is a guy. I've seen Mike in the locker room. You know, I, I know people that, that trained with Mike. As someone who worked in a gym, um, back in the day, in the 80s, uh, you know, before McGuire, before Sosa, you know, gyms were a place where, you know, steroids were freely used and freely talked about. And you, you got a sense of there was a few NFL players uh, that worked in this gym uh, that was managed by a friend of mine. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I was not one of these people that was, you know, blown away by the 98 home run chase. I knew what was going on. I knew what Sammy Sosa looked like before he looked like that. I knew what Mark McGuire looked like before he looked like that. Uh, and you could even say Brett Boone, who was part of that. McGuire's you know. blood power. McGuire's blood yeah, power. But, yeah, but, but what I'm saying is, but he turned into Paul Bunyan. And, sure. you know, and, and for me, Mike has always been the same guy. You know, and, and Mike, as someone who, you know, not that, I, not that I worked out, not that I trained at that level, but as someone who had been with people that were on the clean side, you know, with the muscle packs and the different things that they would do, um, you know, Mike always just seemed very, he was never closed about that type of stuff. You know, he never seemed, I think Mike Piazza was the kind of guy who was as, Unliked as he was as a player, and he wasn't really one of these. He's a lot like Ewing, in the sense that um, he was never really appreciated by his teammates. You know, he was not a guy that was very close with. You know, he wasn't particularly close with Al Ryder. He wasn't particularly close with, you know, his pitching staff. Uh, you know, John Franco, guys on he that was a team. Leader. I always uh, looked at him as a leader by example. He you, exactly. He that's exactly what he was. Right, and, that's exactly what he was. about the heart and soul of those Mets teams, he was certainly the leader by example, the vocal leader. Uh, it was weird. They really didn't have a Keith Hernandez on that team. They didn't have a Gary Carter nope. on that team. Nope. They had a lot of really had good a... veterans, yeah. grinders, guys who were professionals, wanted to win. Even though they took – it wasn't the crazy Mets of the late 80s because they sanitized that clubhouse uh, when they got rid of everybody. These weren't – you know, choir boys, but they weren't the crazy guys, but they were real professionals and you respected them. And maybe they weren't the best team on paper, but they got the most. And Bobby Valentine got the most out of those teams like Bobby Valentine. I hate Bobby Valentine. 98, 97, 98, 99, 2000. 
some of the best managerial years in Mets history. Oh, absolutely, without question. I haven't liked the manager since. I haven't liked no, the manager since. No, so, right. you, know, I, I gotta, you know, I'm on that train. Luis Rojas, very early. I have my eyes. We'll see. I'm hoping. We'll see. We'll see. I don't we'll want to get too excited. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah. I felt that way about Mickey Calloway when they hired Mickey Calloway. So. I did. And when it was 10-1 or 11-1, I felt the same way, too. You're right about that. But, but David, yeah. you know, uh, Mark, David is a complicated guy because he is. But it wasn't even as good as Scott Rowland in his career when it's really – Yeah, but Scott Rowland didn't play in New York. Scott Rowland didn't play in New York. And the, 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 uh, the only other player that was on the same level as David was Greg Nettles. And that's the and that's the – comparison that I made that's who was on the ballot for the Yankees um and I felt that you know given the fact that Nettles played so well in the especially in the 78 series that he had that uh you know David never really had that you know platform you know the first time he made the playoffs he was a young player and he did not perform well um and you know uh I've always felt that the Mets put way too much in the Reyes and Wright basket without surrounding them with better players. Uh, I always felt that, um, you know, like David, I thought David was a player that played at the highest level that you could play. You know, he stole bases. He wasn't a great, you know, he didn't have a great arm. He, in a lot of ways, he's like Piazza in the sense that wasn't he, he did everything like else well. Piazza? Don't you think he was similar to that? Not, I think Piazza had a better... Sure. No, but I'm I saying Piazza, not only, but... In some ways had a more impactful Mets career. I hate to say, David, because of what he meant for the team. David is good, and maybe I'm shortchanging David Wright because I do not dislike him, but it just, he felt very good. Very, a very good player. And maybe it's the... David was a guy... David David was a guy who could hit 300, he could hit 30 home runs, he could drive in 100, he could play a Golden Glove level of, of third base, and he was a guy that everyone in the clubhouse respected. He was not a guy that people would shy away from. He, he was a good soldier, and it hurt him when, you know, Tony Bernazard decided to make everybody hits his out. See, people don't remember this stuff, you know? And it, it just cracks me up, you know, when, you know, of course, I'm referring to Tony Bernazard, former VP of player personnel, both a, a really a favorite of both Mike's and myself. Um, you know, we just love that Tony Bernazard. He, uh, sure. he had decided, he had decided uh, for the team uh, as the, you know, the, the vice president of player personnel, a guy who'd never coached, never managed at any level, uh, but was hired from the commissioner's office and was given the task of teaching the team how to hit the 240 career hitter was going to teach the Mets how to hit in city field, which they weren't sure if it was a pitcher's park or a hitter's park. And they would say, this is how we're going to attack. We're going to hit everything to the opposite field. Well, you know, as usual, everything went awry because of that. And the Mets were one of the worst teams in slugging percentage and power numbers, uh, in, in 2009 and it really messed with David because David was such a good soldier. He was going to do whatever, you know, the bosses told him to do. And, um, I, I still think when you look at the numbers and you look at all of the different benchmarks that we give to these players, 
that David was a on a Hall of Fame track, and even though he did get hurt, even though his career was cut short, his numbers are still better than Craig Nettles. You well, know? I'm, I'm going to um, myself. You're right. From an offensive standpoint, if you go to Baseball Reference, if you go to the the old OPS Plus, which you know measures against his peers, league ballpark, all that nonsense. Uh, he's top 10. He's better than Wade Boggs. He's better than Ron Santo, both Hall of Famers. I just mentioned Scott Rowland. He's better than Nolan Arenado, Ron Say, Evan Longoria, um, Adrian Beltre, who many think might, uh, you know, wind up getting in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, uh, if he played his career for the most part, like the first four years, he's right up there uh, with Mike Schmidt, Eddie Matthews, and Chip Jones. Uh, Bill Joyce, you know, really guys. That I think Eddie Matthews. I think Eddie Matthews is a great comparison. I think that's exactly the kind of player, and it's actually very um, insightful, Mike, that you would pick a guy like Eddie Matthews to compare David to, because David was Eddie Matthews, you know, in a lot of ways to people, and either Reyes or Beltran were uh, Hank Aaron, you know, and that's you know Eddie Matthews should be you know as well known as George Brett and Mike Schmidt when you think about great third baseman of all time, because Eddie Matthews is right there, man, you know, but he played in the shadow. Yeah. And he played in the shadow of Hank Aaron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, he played, he played on a team with Hank Aaron and Warren Spahn and 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 everybody remembers Spahn. Everybody remembers Eddie Matthews, uh, Hank Aaron, but a lot of people don't remember Eddie Matthews. And, When you when you think about great players, and I don't I don't I wouldn't put him in the same sentence as Chipper. Chipper was a different kind of player, you know. Chipper was somebody that played for a long time. Chipper was a guy that overcame a devastating knee injury, uh, and he was on his way to being position. right. Yeah, and multiple positions. Yeah, outfield, shortstop. Yeah, so shortstop. I, I think yep. Wright. I think Wright is the guy that most people will point to as controversial. But when you look at the numbers, and when you talk to people around baseball, um, I mean, I had Yankee fans telling me as much as they love Nettles, you know, they think David was the better player, you know, and that's really what we're trying to, you know, come up with here is who who would be the best player in their prime at that position, and some people would say Alex Rodriguez, but you know what? We'll never know. We'll never know whether the Yankees. Uh, you know, Alex Rodriguez was, you know, was was really that good. Was he really that good? People say, well, what about when he was with the Mariners? If you read Selena Roberts' book, you know, the difference between A-Rod in his junior year of high school and his senior year of high school, he gained 30 pounds of muscle mass, and he used to hang out with a guy named Jose Canseco. So, yeah. you know, his whole career might be alive for all we know. So I, and think I, about I just... Things change if he signs with the Mets. Like Mets history pivots in 2001, and maybe we're not even talking about David Wright if A. Rod signs. With maybe him. it's it's very possible. Look, it's very possible. Jose Reyes. Jose Reyes is gone if if, if A. Rod signs with the Mets. He's traded. Steve Phillips trades him in a heartbeat <laughs> at that point. Uh, yeah, for Jose history. Cruz Jr. Uh, <laughs> for Jose Cruz, <laughs> right, but. Uh, yeah, I, I knew people would come at me for, for David, but, you know, I think the statistics in the book and, and the way that I frame it, uh, I think that, that you know, uh, you know the Yankee fans will go nuts for A-Rod, the sabermetric people will go nuts for A-Rod, but I think that um, 
and all the feedback I've gotten from the book, David Wright has been the person I've heard about. I haven't really heard about him a lot, believe it or not. I think people, I think people bought the chapter. I think people, uh, you know, I haven't seen a lot of blowback yet, but it hasn't really hit the mainstream on Twitter. So I'm sure I'm, well, I'm sure I'm going to hear about it then, Mike. You're, you're going to hear about it because people are going to look at this black and white. And to me, you're trying to add color to this in the sense where you're taking the Mets, the Yankees, the Giants, uh, the Dodgers. You're trying to blend multiple different eras. And, I mean, look, I, was, I watch games from the 90s on replay. And I watched those games. I remember watching those games live. I mean, I think Piazza's first game was on uh, recently, and I just clicked into it for a couple of innings. I remember watching that game. I feel like it was yesterday. And I'm watching the sport. I'm watching the broadcast. I'm watching the stadium. I'm watching the graphics. I'm watching the players. And I'm like, this seems like it's how I used to look at 1960s games when I was in the 80s and the 90s. And maybe I'm feeling old. And I'm like, wow, it just... It just goes to show you how the game changes. So what you're trying to do, at least I think, you have your modern players, your Wrights, your Jeters, your Riveras, and what have You go way back with a Dazzy Vance or uh, a Monty Irving. You also get the Giants and the Dodgers in here. And then you go in the between. You have the Fords and the Willie Mays and, and, and what have you. Um, you know, Jackie Robinson, obviously. So you, I think at least I felt you were trying to hit all the errors and bring them together as fairly as possible. Maybe the one that gets squeezed a little bit is the baby boomers in the seventies with no Greg Nettles. Um, but you also have Joe Torrey who's a manager. So maybe you could count him there. Maybe that's the one era. Well, Seaver could be that era, but maybe that's the one era, which is a little underrepresentative where you have modern and you have way back, maybe in between is a little underrepresentative. And that's maybe where the controversy comes into play. Well, because I didn't go into it that way. I didn't go into it, well, I'm going to pick somebody from that era or this era or that era. I looked at players who were dominant in their era. You know, that's how I, come, I came up with these guys. You know, Whitey Ford is probably the best Yankee pitcher of all time. You know, and, and when he was the Yankees' ace, he was the best pitcher in the American League. You know, it wasn't like, oh, there was another guy or there was somebody else on his team or... I mean, what he was the best of the best, you know, at a time when the Yankees were the best of the best and no one could touch them. And he was the ace of the team. And, you know, like that's how I like Christy Mathewson was the best pitcher in on the planet. You know, he was so dominant. And when people t- try to take his era and say, well, you know, he he pitched in a segregated era. I, I don't want to hear it. He pitched against the best players, you know. Uh, the best players of his era at that time. Now, fine. You want to say that in 1903, uh, you know, uh, 1904, 1905, that there were uh, players in the Negro Leagues that could compete. I'm not going to say there weren't, but, you know, this isn't fantasy land. You know, it's not. You, 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 you look at the eras. You look at how they dominated the eras. That's why Dazzy Vance is on the team. He's not on the team because he was a Brooklyn Dodger. He's not on the team. I could have put David Cohn there. People would have been happy. I could have put Jerry Kuzman there. People could have been happy. I could have put even Dwight Gooden there, and people would have been happy. But, you know, Gooden, Dwight Gooden, when you look at his numbers, you know, at the end of the day, I couldn't 
there was two Dwight Goodens. There was the 84, 85 Dwight Gooden, and then there was everybody else Dwight Gooden. And, and Gooden and I, was still good. He was still he was good. Still good. He talked to Doc. A few he was just never the same. And, he was. And I, you're right. Maybe that's an, Doc could also be considered. And and I hate saying this because Doc was a gentleman to me. I talked about him off the air. Talked to him on the air. We talked about his career. The shoulder thing was very vastly underreported when you look back. Maybe overrated. Maybe more hype than anything because. 88, 89, 90, uh, not so great, not so great. You know, here's the other thing, and I got to bring this up. You know, nobody's ever going to put Mike and Mark here on the, you know, the progressive list when it comes to the guys on the Internet. You know, nobody's given me any kind of uh, platitudes for being progressive. But you have Joan Payson, a woman, during, as you point out, the Mad Men era, which if anybody watches the show Mad Men on Netflix after the fact, uh, not exactly uh, endearing to women. Let's put it that way. And Joan Payson, I did not know she was a minority owner in a baseball club before then in the Giants. And you outlined very well the Giants and Stoneham and, and what happened there and how close the Dodgers were to not going out west. So here's this gap, here's this void. And I guess eventually National League Baseball would have came back to New York. But who knows? She brings National League Baseball back with Bill Shea and the Mets win a title under her and yeah like you said m donald grant is the residual gift at the end of this whole thing. right but exactly here's a woman owner in the 60s it really struck me i'm like that's a progressive pick nobody would give us credit for something they don't give you credit for nobody would give us credit for talking about it and here we are you know miss the progressive world that we are now there's no women owner in baseball maybe there are minority owners there's no women owners in baseball and here you go you pick joan payson which nobody would have thought of as because everyone's going to say how can you not put george steinbrenner how can you put joan payson who nobody's thinking about but it's a progressive pick and it's an interesting pick and there is context to it well i mean look i i I've always been amazed by her story, you know, and if you ever read uh, Jimmy Breslin's, can anybody here play that game? Um, you know, he, he does a great job of, of capturing who she was. Um, and she really was, she was a baseball fan and she was somebody that, that, you know, if she could have, she could have kept the New York giants. She certainly had the money to do it. Uh, she could have kept the New York giants. And I always said, you know, when Stoneham had money problems, you know, he you, know, he, you know, he was like, I have all these money problems. He was like, okay, great. I'll give, I'll give you a million dollars and you give me Willie Mays, you know. Um, Payson was, and she like was a, a real Julie baseball Serving. fan. She really like a Julius Serving thing. It's like Julius Serving. Exactly. Like the, and she really cared. She really cared about the team. But here's the thing. This is, and, and one of the reasons I picked Joan Payson was, you know, it wasn't because she was a woman. It was because of what she accomplished at a time when, when women were not even in the conversation uh, about baseball. And she, she was the one who hired George Weiss. She was the one who, you know, wanted the team to be what the fans wanted it to be. She would like the name Meadowlarks, right? If this was Fred Wilpon buying the Mets in 1962, they're called the Meadowlarks if that's what he wants. He doesn't care what the fans think. But she wanted the fans to be happy. She wanted to bring them a team. Her one, I guess, you know, her one thing was that they had to have that NY, that interlocking NY on the hat that was representative of the New York Giants. That's what, 
you know, when you, when you go back to the history books, that's probably the thing that she insisted that be part of the Mets identity was that NY. And when you look at what they accomplished in 11 years, they went from the worst team in baseball to the amazing Mets in 69. And then the improbable, almost improbable miracle two in 1973. And that's, by being the kind of owner that just allowed her people to do their thing. And, you know, that's remarkable. That's a remarkable accomplishment when you consider that when she died, it all fell apart. You know, when she died, when, when you know, it first happened when Gil died, but she was ill and, she, and then she passed. And then, you know, and then everything went downhill, you know, and it took a long time. It wasn't until Nelson Doubleday, you know, not Nelson and Fred. It was Nelson Doubleday that bought the team and rescued it. Um, and and I, that's the reason I treated that chapter the way I treated it. You know, yes, I picked Joan Payson, but I also wanted to point out what a great owner Nelson Doubleday was. What a great owner Jacob Rupert was. Here's Jacob Rupert who makes all his money from booze, right? And the, and, and the depression, uh, the prohibition comes, and he still spends the same amount of money on the team that he did before and never takes out a dividend for himself, even though his business just went from, you know, who drank non-alcoholic beer during the 30s? Nobody. No. No. You know, no. Nobody. You know? <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? So I wanted to. Well, there's more of that today, but those, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Look, hanging out, watching a ball game. That's interesting. Right. Here's another what if, and I, I thought about it reading your Seaver. And we'll, we'll, we'll end on the Seaver one. Easy, Seaver. There's no reason why he shouldn't be on the team. Debating that is silly. But underreported again, and you talk about Seaver, the second go around, he not being protected and the weird rules that they had back then with free agency and protecting players. Mets losing him. What if he stays on the team? Yeah, Davey says that Doc would have made the team, but who knows? Maybe Frank Cashin's able to push back a little bit more on uh, Doc making the team in 84. If, and this is the other thing, if they trade Terry Blocker in 85 for reinforcements to bring Seaver in that rotation to shore it up, do they go out? Because Seaver's under contract then. Do they go out and get Bob O'Heater in 86? Bob O'Heater's a big part of the 86 team. And Seaver was on his last, his last leg. At that point, yeah, he put up some some wins in '86 for the Red Sox, but he was done. Interesting, what if? But it also shows you by them and Davey not wanting to bring Seaver back into the organization, the complexity of the kind of person he was. Great player, off the field, not always the greatest guy. Bob Clappish in the worst team money can buy talks about how Seaver tried to pick on him as a beat writer uh, by taking his newspaper out of his hand. And then you also bring up now how sad it is where. Now he's retreated from public life because of this insidious, uh, I guess it's Alzheimer's, I'm assuming, or some sort of dementia, um, which is a horrible, horrible disease that there's no cure for and, and, and sometimes doesn't get viewed in this world of corona uh, as something that, you know, how people really, there's other things that we have to worry about when it comes to health. Um, it's sad, but he was a complicated guy and, and not always a likable guy. And, and, and that's the part. We all blame them, Donald Grant. We all hate what happened. And there's so many people in 77 that said, I'm not going to – they tell me to this day, I stopped being a Mets fan after Seaver. But Seaver was a complicated guy. And, and I, 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 that, that's what I took away 
reading the Seaver chapter uh, when, when we went through that. But I, I, he's Tom Seaver. He could be as complicated as he wants. You know, he was a great teammate. He was certainly someone that was the heart and soul of the team. And when he came back in 83, um, here's, here's, like I said, you know, and, and all you have to do is look at the actions of the Mets regarding the best player ever to wear their jersey. You know, he, you know, he retires. He has his wonderful day at Shea Stadium. He retires, and who does he go to work for in broadcasting? The Yankees? Do you think mm-hmm. that – Do you, I mean, do you think he picked the Yankees? He, here's the thing. I want, I want fans to go back, and I want them to watch the 77 World Series. I believe – I'm not sure exactly which game it was. It was either the first game at Yankee Stadium. I don't know if they had home field advantage in 77. I can't remember. But if you go to YouTube and you look up um, – I believe it's the first game at Yankee Stadium uh, of that series, either game three or game one. Tom Seaver is one of the people who's on the broadcast. Yep. And he is talking so happy about the Yankees and how – Wonderful it is for the Yankees to be like, you know, ruling New York and, and this and that. You're talking about a guy who, and I, I think that Nancy Seaver had some great quotes uh, in the book about how he wasn't just jilted once, he was jilted twice. And, you know, for a guy like Seaver, you know, Seaver might have been a proud guy. Seaver might have been someone that people found arrogant. But he's Tom Seaver, you know. No one cares if you're Fred Wilpon and, and you're Jeff Wilpon. And, you know, if Tom Seaver rubs you the wrong way, uh, too bad. He's Tom Seaver. Um, if Tom Seaver, I know that there was always a time when Tom Seaver wanted to be compensated for personal appearances. He's Tom Seaver. Right. You know, yeah. you're ponying up the bucks to bring Tom Seaver back so that the Mets fans could see him. Well, I mean, you think it's on it's not on purpose why it took so long for them to, to com- commission a statue. You think it, it, it's, it's a coincidence that the best player of all time in, 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 in Mets history does not have um, a bigger place of honor when that ballpark opened up. Um, and when you interview him and when you, when you saw him in city, when you saw him in city field, it didn't seem like the greatest net had returned home. It seemed as if, oh, well, you know, he's Tom Seaver, so I guess we have to include him. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And and only people like you and I and other people who have been around the Mets and aren't, you know, uh, aren't the, you know, pom-pom waving, you know, 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 blind loyalists will admit to that and say, yeah, you know what? They didn't really love Tom Seaver. They really didn't love him. You know, and, and, and just the whole way it was handled, and I refer to it in the book, and I want people to read that chapter because, you know, I, I, it, it was one of my favorite chapters and almost also one of my um, harder chapters to write. Even though it was my favorite, it was hard because I kept getting angry as I wrote it because I saw how poorly he was treated by the franchise that he made great. And it, it was very hard to not... And that chapter with the Mets are the stupidest franchise ever. Like, that's what I wanted to write. Like, you had Tom Seaver. Not only did you let him go once, but you let him go twice. You know, right. I mean, I love Lindbergh. Like, exactly. Have not forgiven them. A generation. There's so many exactly. people 
that have told me that grew up uh, during that era. So 77 was when uh, they said enough. The book is Gotham Baseball, New York's all-time team, Mark Healy. Uh, you can check him out at GothamBaseball.com. I got to tell you, Mark, the hour went fast. It was fun. We got to do this again. Um, hopefully you're going to stay away from the New York beaches and build de Blasio this week. And I don't want to see her about Mark Healy going to the Rockaways and sneaking on the beach. And then I have to, you know, have the mayor come and get you over yeah. there. Yeah. Um, you don't have to worry about that, buddy. <laughs> um, you got anything before, before we wrap up here, you got anything else going on? Uh, I know that you have the, the wave, obviously the newspaper that you work at. Uh, what else you got going on? Anything else you want to let the listeners know about? No, I just want I just want folks to check out um, the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Uh, it's a it's a group of authors I've joined that are promoting their books during this pandemic. Uh, you know, I have links to it on my uh, there's links to it on my Twitter at at Mark C Healy. Uh, I you could go to um, GothamBaseball.com and click on the book on the menu, and that'll give you all your chan- you know, all your different choices where to buy the book. I do urge people that if you do want a signed copy, um, you know, please, uh, the the link is there on the page, uh, GothamBaseball.com, the book. Um, you know, you can get it from Bookshop.org. Oh, we lost Mark. We lost Mark. He dropped. Unfortunately, uh, we lost Mark. So the pandemic, Gotham Baseball. GothamBaseball.com is the website. Sorry there, Mark. Uh, obviously, we wanted to. We didn't. We didn't hit you off on the on that one. So, uh, anyway, check it out. The book is Gotham Baseball, New York's all-time team. Mark Healy had a lot of fun talking to him this uh, this last hour. I hope you guys have a great Memorial Day weekend. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Of course. In the meantime, go to the TalkingMetsPodcast.com for all current and past episodes, send me a tweet. You want to talk to me, whether it's a holiday weekend or not, at Mike Silva Media, or send me an email, MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Again, check out Mark Healy on Twitter, at Mark C. Healy, GothamBaseball.com, Gotham Baseball, New York's all-time team. Sorry, Mark, I don't know what happened there. We got a little disconnected. We'll wrap up here. Again, enjoy your holiday weekend. Be well, be healthy, be safe, take care. Until next week, we'll see you then with another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. 